Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with Dr. John Fonville. Today we're at the start of a new series about worship. It's called The Gift Giver and His Gathered Guests. Over the next several weeks, John will be walking us through a set of lessons that remind us that we gather in congregations to receive the abundant gifts from our triune God, to be served by Him. Think of the anticipation of a child on Christmas Day. That's what John is unwrapping for us today as we eagerly anticipate what God has for us. Let's start things off with a message called, We Gather to be Served, Part 2. The scriptures teach that God comes to us on his terms and by his means. So I want to show you that really quick. If you go back and you look at the Old Testament, both of the tabernacle and the temple, worship was always about God coming into the midst of his people on his terms and by his means. It was God coming to his people. And so the tabernacle and temple were in the center of the camp of Israel. And the whole camp was arranged around the centerpiece of the tabernacle or the temple. And both served as the center of their worship in relationship with God. And so we see that God's coming is based in this temple or tabernacle was based on grace. He never came as a response to Israel's acts of worship. In the most holy place of the tabernacle and temple, there was the mercy seat. And the mercy seat symbolized the presence of the Lord amongst his people, God coming to dwell amongst his people, just like the Garden of Eden, God dwelling in the midst of his people because the Garden of Eden was a garden temple. It was a temple. God dwelled there, and now God is coming back to dwell amongst his people. God doesn't need to be served by any man because he is the one who is holy, self-sufficient, and gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. He makes it clear here that the true God does not live in temples like the Parthenon. I've been to the Parthenon. I've stood there and looked at it, pagan temple. Paul is pointing to that, and he tells these pagan Athenians, God doesn't live there. And he's not served by the sacrifices that you take there regularly to this temple. He doesn't need your sacrifices. It doesn't add anything to him. And yet, how often is our worship, because we have this nearly exclusive emphasis on our activity, what we do for God, how often is like the Athenians who regularly sought to serve God by continually bringing sacrifices to their temples? So, we come to church as God's gathered guests called by grace to receive from the gift giver his good gifts to us in Christ, applied by the Holy Spirit. And then we respond with sacrifices of praise, with thanksgiving, with works of service to our neighbor, with a life of worship, as we saw at the beginning. Yet many churches today have the exclusive direction in the movement of worship from man to God. It's just what we do. It's what we do. It's what we do. And so the main emphasis is on our activity, and Sunday worship centers on our work rather than on the triune God's work for us. I just wonder how many of you have ever heard or understood that worship is to be the divine service where God comes as a great gift giver and he serves you week after week. 
Very few have ever heard of that. It's a tragedy. It's totally foreign in a lot of evangelical churches today. In fact, in most churches, for a good bit, it's not even on the radar screen. We've developed this man-centered approach to worship, which is a direct opposite of what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach that God comes to us on His terms and by His means. So I'm going to show you that really quick. If you go back and you look at the Old Testament, both of the tabernacle and the temple, worship was always about God coming into the midst of His people on His terms and by His means. It was God coming to his people. And so the tabernacle and temple were in the center of the camp of Israel. And the whole camp was arranged around the centerpiece of the tabernacle or the temple. And both served as the center of their worship and relationship with God. And so we see that God's coming is based in this temple or tabernacle was based on grace. He never came as a response to Israel's acts of worship. In the most holy place of the tabernacle and temple, there was the mercy seat. And the mercy seat symbolized the presence of the Lord amongst his people, God coming to dwell amongst his people, just like the Garden of Eden, God dwelling in the midst of his people because the Garden of Eden was a garden temple. It was a temple. God dwelled there, and now God is coming back to dwell amongst his people. So the presence of God coming to be with God's people at the mercy seat. What was the mercy seat? The mercy seat was the place where God's justice was satisfied. It was the place where sin was pardoned. It was the place where his people were accepted as righteous through the blood of the covenant. And so each year on the Day of Atonement, two male goats would be selected. The high priest would cast lots over them. One of these goats were to be killed and its blood sprinkled on the mercy seat in the most, high, uh, most holy place, which symbolized the place where God came to dwell amongst his people, the presence of God amongst his people, the slain blood of an innocent sacrifice. And if you, go, if you skip fast forward all the way to the New Testament and you read the book of Hebrews, as the author of Hebrews is reflecting on all of this Old Testament worship and cultic practice and liturgy of the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant, he's looking at it and he says that all of it, the tabernacle, then the temple, but the tabernacle, it pointed to Jesus. It served as a type of Christ. This is why God required that the tabernacle be made exactly according to the pattern that he gave Moses. Because God wanted this tabernacle and then the temple to accurately point people to the saving work of Jesus that he was coming to accomplish. If you look at John chapter 1 verse 14, John tells us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. He says that the eternal Son of God comes to pitch his tent. He came to tabernacle among his people. He is the true tabernacle. Jesus in the flesh, the Son of God in the flesh, is tabernacling amongst his people. It is God present with his people. And so the death of the scapegoat that was killed on the Day of Atonement, the author of Hebrews says that this typified Christ, 
propitiatory death on the cross. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. He uses his word propitiation. What is that word? I'll come back to it in just a minute. But that word propitiation goes back to the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. As our propitiation, Jesus, Paul says, and the author of Hebrews says, exhausted God's wrath that stood against us. He didn't just deflect it. He didn't prevent it from reaching us. It was exhausted. When he died on the cross, which was the mercy seat, he bore God's wrath against sin. It was, and all of God's wrath unleashed against us was unleashed against his son. And so Jesus was a propitiation. Jesus was, the author says in Hebrews and Paul says in Romans, Jesus was our mercy seat. Now, what is the point of all that? Here's the point. We see that at the heart and center of all worship, both in the Old Covenant or in the New Covenant, at the heart and center of all worship are Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice for sin. At the center of Christian worship, we encounter the triune God, the Trinity, who is even more fully and finally revealed in Christ crucified and risen again for us. In Christian worship, the point is, is that we find a merciful God standing at the center of our worship, drawing us in to give us his gifts and benefits for his act of service on our behalf. And so in the divine service, then, the triune God comes to us on his terms. It is through sacrifice. It is through his son. You cannot approach the holy God without a proper mediator. And so he comes to us on his terms, but he not only comes to us on his terms, but he also comes to us by his own means. What are the means by which the triune God comes to us each week in public worship with his blessings to bless us? How do we encounter, because that's what we want, we want a profound encounter with the triune living God. How do we encounter this God? How does he bless us? How does he come to us? Listen carefully. God in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, comes to us by means of word and sacrament. Those are his gifts to us. These are his gifts to us. Word and sacrament are referred to as means of grace. What is a means of grace? It's just simply this. The means of grace are the Holy Spirit's acts of delivering Christ and all of his saving benefits to us every time. And this is why historically, when you look at the divine service, the divine service was always divided up and consisted of two major focuses. The first part of the service was focused on the liturgy of the word, and the second part of the service focused on the liturgy of the sacrament. So just very quickly, let me just go through the liturgy of the word with you and just describe to you what it was and why they did it. The Word of God is what's called the chief means of grace. This is the only place you're going to find Christ in the gospel. God is generally revealed in in creation. You can go to the beach and enjoy God and his creation, but you can look and look and look and look and look and look at the stars and the ocean and the mountains and never find Christ crucified for your sin. It's not revealed there. This is the chief means of grace for special grace 
The gospel, Christ and his saving work is given to us. And so the liturgy of the word is intended to expose God's people to the main place where God reveals himself, not generally, but redemptively, savingly. God's word is where Christ and his saving work is given to us. Therefore, the liturgy of the word says that authentic Christian worship It begins with God's word, it continues with God's word, and it ends with God's word. What does the liturgy of the word include? What elements does it include? Let me just tell you, we're going to go through them one element at a time each week, but here's what it is. The liturgy of the word includes elements such as the invocation, God's greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad he's saying grace to you and not judgment to you, right? He's coming in salvation and grace. God's greeting, the reading of the law and the confession of sin, the declaration of pardon, the declaration and reading, the comfortable words of the gospel, the call to worship, the public reading of scripture, and then the sermon that you're hearing now. That's all part of the liturgy of the word. Now, as I said, we'll come back each week and take a closer look at each of these elements. But what I want to simply know now is this, is that the purpose of each element in the liturgy of the word is to expose God's people in a maximal way to hearing God's word, because that is the chief means of grace. It is through the reading, but especially the preaching of God's word, that the Holy Spirit sets forth the person of Christ and all of his saving benefits and applies all of that to the person who is listening. This is how St. Augustine said it. He said, let us listen to the gospel just as if the Lord himself were present. Martin Luther said that the preaching of the gospel is nothing else than Christ coming to us or us being brought to Christ. Most importantly, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, Faith comes from what? Hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That is a technical phrase meaning the gospel. And so the liturgy of the word, listen, the liturgy of the word is largely an auditory experience. You come to church primarily to sit and listen. Now we have church growth experts who say, oh, this is not a very effective means of communication anymore. And we need to come to church to have dialogues. And so they put a sofa up front, and they sit on a sofa, and it's like you're on the Oprah Winfrey show. That's not what Christ has instituted. Corporate worship is largely a hearing event. Faith comes from hearing. We need to learn to sit down and just be addressed. We don't like that. I was watching a movie with my family last night, and it was about kings. When the king would enter the room, the party would stop. It would be dead silence. Everybody drops to their knees, and they sit there. And you know what they're doing? They're listening for the king to say, continue. And until they hear the words of the king address them, they do nothing but sit to wait to hear from the king. We are worshiping in the presence of a king. And we need to learn to listen, to hear, 
worship, corporate worship is largely a hearing event. The living God addresses us from his word and we respond to him by hearing with faith. So that's the liturgy of the word, to expose God's people in a maximal way to the chief means of grace. But then the In addition to the liturgy of the word, there was the liturgy of the sacrament. The liturgy of the sacrament. The sacraments being baptism and the Lord's Supper. The sacraments are connected to the word, but they are visible words. So whereas the liturgy of the word is largely a hearing event, the liturgy of the sacrament is largely, not exclusively, but largely a seeing event. In preaching, you hear the promises of the gospel announced to you verbally. But in the Lord's Supper, you see the promises of the gospel given to you visibly and physically. And so though we know this, that apart from the word, sacraments are only empty symbols. And it's nothing, it's indistinguishable from, say, just any other washing or uh, any other ordinary meal. But when the sacraments are connected to the word, the Apostle Paul, listen, says that those sacraments become visible gospels. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, Paul sees that the Lord's Supper is a visible proclamation of the gospel. He reminds the Corinthians and us that every time they observe the Lord's Supper, they proclaim the Lord's death visibly and physically until he comes. So the Lord's Supper, a visible gospel, baptism, a visible gospel, the Lord's Supper is not the law. It is 100% gospel. The Lutheran reformer Philip Melanchthon, he said this, he says, just as the word enters the ear in order to strike the heart, so also the right, the sacrament, enters through the eye in order to move the heart. The word and the right have the same effect. Augustine put it well when he said that the sacrament is a visible word because the rite is received by the eyes and is, as it were, a picture of the word, signifying the same thing as the word. You see, in the early church, the Lord's Supper wasn't this optional extra tag-on. Baptism wasn't an optional extra tag-on. Baptism wasn't relegated to the Sunday night service when nobody's present. Baptism was central to the worship of the church because it's not just for the one being baptized. Baptism is for the comfort and assurance of the whole church present in worship. The same is true for the Lord's Supper. It was a regular means of grace. This, the reason is because, what, by means of the Lord's Supper, why do you want to have it regularly? Here's why. Because by means of the Lord's Supper, the Holy Spirit takes bread and he takes wine, common, ordinary signs, attaches the promise of the gospel to it, and he signifies and seals to your heart. He guarantees to your heart the fullness of grace that you have in Christ. How many of you want that kind of assurance every single week? I do. You see, it's like this. We'll come back to it, but here's the perfect illustration. Victoria just got a scholarship to go swim with Dr. Sam at Oklahoma Baptist to win four national championships. Four straight. (laughs) 
And here's the thing. They could have said it. Dr. Sanders and Victoria, you've got a scholarship. And we're like, okay, that's great. But there's no document with a seal that assures us that Dr. Sam's verbal word that she got a scholarship is actually true. How do I know it's true for my daughter? How does my daughter know you got a scholarship? And mom and dad, you get to save a lot of money. (laughs) How do we know that that good news is true? Because she got a sealed official letter from the university saying, Victoria, here's your scholarship. That's what the sacraments are. You hear the gospel proclaimed to you verbally in word, and you're sitting there going, I don't know if that's true for me because my life is so bad. My marriage is so bad. I've got so many struggles. I go through so many heartaches. I've got so much, so many things weighing me down and so many problems. How could this possibly be true? And you come to the Lord's table, and it is like a neon sign saying that as you eat this holy communion, Christ is saying to you, you are mine. That's assurance. It's a seal that guarantees the announcement that you've heard. And so the the divine service had the liturgy of the word. It had the liturgy of the sacrament that worked together by which the Holy Spirit takes the word preached and the word visibly signed and sealed through the sacrament so that the Christian can see and understand more clearly and feel and experience more deeply the promises of the gospel. This is how one great Reformed theologian out of the Reformation said it. He said, what believers see with their eyes usually sinks deeper into the soul and leaves deeper impressions of themselves than only those which they hear with their ears. So the aim of the Lord's Supper is to continually drive the gospel deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts to assure us of God's favor over our life and to empower us for sanctification and service to our neighbor. It is to give us the assurance that God is indeed happy and favorable toward me. And when you have the assurance of God's favor toward you, you will be happy and your Christian life will perform much better. The liturgy of the word, the liturgy of the sacrament are designed for the specific purpose to center our faith on the triune God who's most fully and finally revealed in Christ. And as we do, we are receiving grace, favor, comfort, assurance. Our hearts grow happier and happier. And then we respond with great performance, not out of duty, but out of a life of sheer gratitude, of worship, of thankfulness, because the gift giver never stops giving his gifts to me and makes me exceedingly happy to live for him and to love my neighbor. That is the whole design of corporate worship. And so we come each Sunday because we want to encounter the gift giver. We want to receive his gifts because that's what worship is all about. And then we can respond with our service of thanks and praise and faith and giving and serving. So let's pray. Our Father, we thank you 
Oh, we, we thank you that you're the gracious gift giver. We thank you that you're a gracious God revealed to us in Christ, crucified, buried, risen, and ascended for us. We thank you that as a gracious God, you draw us together as believers, as a body of Christ, your gathered guests week after week into the deepest fellowship and communion with you and with one another in this divine service of grace. Help us to come each week with faith and humility to sit at your feet and to be served by you, to have our feet washed, to sit at your table and to have you serve us your meal, your sacraments, your word, the chief means of grace. Take all of these elements of the service and center our hearts, center our faith on the triune God who is most perfectly and finally revealed the person and work of Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen for us. We pray this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, John. You just heard a message called, We Gather to be Served, Part 2. More from the Gift Giver series coming up next time. The heart of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday, With each message, our prayer is you would hear, believe, and enjoy the gospel in your life. If you want to re-listen to or share any of these messages, you can find our smartphone app or locate our podcast by searching for Dr. John Fonville or Him We Proclaim. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to learn more about his local church in Jacksonville, Florida, you can visit ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.